All right. Class seems to be shrinking. Um, we have, and there's no excuse. Yesterday I understood, but actually I had almost everybody here in my class yesterday with all the, if you had classes yesterday with all the confusion and the fact that, yes, we'll announce it, and if you have the text messaging thing, you got the notices, but it never showed up on the website. Not even once. So if I had students, well, I went to confirm it on the website, it didn't say anything, so I didn't know. So I don't know what went on there, but great fun. So at least I found out about it before I came all the way in. <laughs> you didn't find out till you got here. Oh, jeez. Well, see, I was, I, when I said they said power was off, I didn't want to come up because I figured if power was out, they wouldn't, you know, rooms would be locked, I wouldn't be able to get into anything. So I didn't know if I'd even be able to get into the campus. I usually get up here at like 6.30 in the morning. So I, I got in the text just before I was leaving. I have fortunately happened to check it. Usually I don't bother, I just for some reason saved me. But yeah, there were a lot of people up here for a while apparently. All right, we have coming up an exam next time on the 20, which will be the 28th, will be Tuesday. And that will cover chapter, the end of chapter two, the little bit we hadn't covered on spectral lines and the Doppler effect pretty much, the last couple sections of chapter two. Chapter three on telescopes, four through eight on the planets, and chapter nine as far as we get through today, which should be pretty much most of it. We should be able to get through most of chapter nine today on the sun because we're going to come back and review a lot of that as we come back the next couple, as we talk about the stars, we'll be talking about a lot of that material again. So we'll be through pretty well through that. Um, we have a homework assignment, which if you did not get, I have copies of it up here if you need that. That is due on March 2nd. And any February solar observations that you made, anything you made during this current month, you can go ahead and turn a copy of those in on March 2nd, by March 2nd again as well. Again, that is the Friday, so you can, it's, if you're emailing those to me, if you're going to turn in a paper copy, make sure you turn it in on the 1st, which will be our last class meeting before break. Then after break, we have quiz. The fourth quiz will be scheduled that first week after break. And the second article review will be due the end of the end of that week. And there's also, I didn't put it up there, but the second iTunes quiz will be up there as well. That'll be again after, will not start till after after break. So I'll remind you of those again next week. Questions on what's coming up? Questions on the exam? Same style, format as the previous exam. So it'll be essentially the same. Essentially the same types types of questions, same styles of questions that you got last time. Yes, sir. I heard you correctly. You said uh, the chapter two is it solely going to be on the Doppler effect. It'll be the Doppler effect and then spectral the spectral lines. We talked about the formation of the emission spectra, absorption spectra, continuous spectra, things we didn't cover on the previous one. I'd finished right before that, and that way I'll have all this material so that when it comes to the final exam. And if I didn't tell you before, I usually take my previous exams and make the final. So most of the material will come right off these. So what I recommend for studying for the final is just study your previous exam. So that's got, I've got to finish the rest of chapter two in there. Anything else? No? OK. Picture of the day for today is the sky, amazingly enough. huh? Uh, this is actually what you can see right about now in the evening sky. And I didn't realize until I'd scrolled down later, I'd even looked at all the thing without even mentioning where this was taken. This was actually taken in Pennsylvania, northern Pennsylvania. Was it Cherry Hill State Park or something on the, on the border up on the border between Pennsylvania and New York? So a little further north of here, but was actually taken in, in the state of Pennsylvania. 
But you can see a similar thing right now if you look out in the evening sky on a clear night. You'll see that real bright object over there, over to the west as the sun is setting. That's Venus, brightest object you'll see in the sky. A little bit to the left of that as you're, stare, as you're watching it in the sky would be the planet Jupiter. And these two are slowly getting closer and closer together. If you watch them over the next couple of weeks, they're going to get closer and closer together. And at one point, they'll actually end up being about three degrees apart, which is very close, to, very close together. Not going to look like they're touching or anything, but they'll be real, two real bright objects very close together in the sky for a couple of days as they sort of pass each other. As Venus gets higher and higher in the sky, and Jupiter is getting lower and lower right now. The other things that the picture is pointing out is that you have the Pleiades star cluster up here in Taurus. So Taurus is up towards the upper portion of the screen. Pleiades star cluster there is a nice cluster of a nice open cluster of stars, something again you can see with your naked eye. It's quite visible. Uh, visible, easy to see as a little grouping of stars. And the other thing that is there is sort of this glowing light. And you look like you're seeing you know, the sunset there, but there's also sort of this little triangular patch of light coming up. That's something called the zodiacal light, which is light from the solar system, from dust in the solar system. So the sun is sitting there glowing at the center of the solar system, sends light out. We get some of it on the Earth. Lots of it goes right past us. There's dust scattered throughout the whole solar system. And some of that dust reflects that sunlight back to us and makes the path the Earth's path, the orbit of the solar system, are a little bit brighter. So you actually get a little bit of brighter light there. And that's what's sort of that glow. And I don't know if you can see it from there, but it's sort of a little patch going up here right after the way it's tilted at the, at, the edge of the, at the edge of the horizon. So that's actually caused by dust in the solar system reflecting sunlight back to us. So any part where we see the planets, which tend to follow, again, the solar system is very, very flat. So everything is in the same, pretty much in the same plane. So all that dust is there as well and actually causes that part of the sky to glow. Zodiacal light, because it occurs in the constellations of the zodiac, that's the path of the sun, or the plane of the Earth's orbit that occurs. So that's why it's called the zodiacal light. It will pass through those 12 constellations of the zodiac. So a few different things there. Again, if you watch, if you get out in the evening sky, take a look at the Take a look at Jupiter. Take a look at, at Jupiter and, and Venus. Watch them. Over the next couple of weeks, they're going to get closer and closer together. And it should be a pretty nice sight. They get closest on, and I don't remember the date, March 13th. So right about the time we're coming back from, right about the time we're coming back from break, they're going to be there at their closest. And then they'll start to separate the other direction. Jupiter will get closer and closer towards the sun in the evening, and Venus will get more and more prominent for the next month or so. Okay, so that's our picture. Questions before we jump to the sun? No? No? Okay. Let's go back to the sun. We were here last time, and we were looking at talking about the mathematical models. So in order to understand the sun, you know, again, we can't go and look in the interior. We can't go you know, study it. We can't go change things that are going on in there and try to figure out what's happening with the sun. We have to use mathematical models. So there's a set of equations that astronomers use. 
to be able to determine. They can determine by using that, they can balance and figure out what the pressure is like at every point in the sun, mathematically, what the temperature is like, how much material is there, and they can determine all of those as you go from the inside of the sun outward. And what, we're fi what we find here, in order for the sun to be stable, two things have to balance. There's gravity is always pulling the sun down. Gravity always wants to collapse everything down to a point. That's the whole point of gravity. That's what it does. It just wants to pull everything down to a straight point. In order for that not to happen, there has to be some force opposing it. And in some cases, like the Earth, it can just be you know, the force of rocks pushing on each other. In the case of the sun, which is more of a gas, it's not really pieces pushing on each other as much as it's the tremendous amount of heat that's being generated at the center, creating an immense pressure pushing outwards. So gravity's trying to pull the sun down. Pressure's trying to explode the sun apart. So if you got rid of gravity, the sun would just explode apart. It's got all this intense pressure inside that would just push it out. And it would explode you know, like a supernova. But because gravity is pulling it down with exactly the right amount, they're in a perfect balance. And that's what we call an equilibrium. Makes them completely balanced. So just as much force pulling down as there is pressure pushing out and keeps the sun completely stable. That'll last for 10 billion years. Sun's been around for about 5 billion. It's got about 5 billion more years to go. And it will be able to generate energy for that time to keep it completely stable. Once something happens and once the energy production starts to slow down and it can't produce as much energy, gravity starts to pull it again. We'll talk about that in the coming chapters, what happens when it's out of equilibrium. This is the boring part. Nothing happens for 10 billion years. The sun essentially stays the same. Doesn't change, doesn't get much bigger, doesn't get much smaller, nothing changes about it. When, when it starts to get out of equilibrium at the end of its life, that's when more interesting things happen. Now I mentioned those equations. I am going to show them to you on the next slide. You don't need to know them. I did put them up here though for you. So you don't need to be able to, you don't need to write them down. You don't need to be able to understand them. This is just the equations that are used. There's four equations here that are used to be able to determine, in this case, the pressure, mass, temperature, and luminosity of the sun as you work out. It's a set of differential equations. Again, just as you've seen, you see them, that's what astronomers have to solve to be able to try to understand the sun. So they're not nice, simple little equations. They're very complicated and they depend on each other in terms of the fact that you know, temperature depends on the luminosity, what you had to determine here, and this one depends on the mass. So they're all interrelated. You, have to so you can't just solve one at a time. You have to solve all four of them at the same time. But if you do that, you can determine at every point in the sun from the center outward what the pressure is, how much mass is there, what the temperature is as you go from the in or out, and how much luminosity is there. So astronomers can actually solve those to determine exactly what a star like the sun would be, would do, or in, ca in this case any star. These would apply to any star. Again, there's a lot of other numbers and constants and things, and again, everything interdepends on each other. So you don't need to know them. I just wanted to show real quick, give you an idea of what the astronomers actually have to solve in order to be able to understand a lot of what we're going to be talking about in the coming weeks. When we talk about stars and how stars change, it really comes from these types of equations. OK. Get rid of the equations. Question, yeah. Um, Sorry. Yeah. Wouldn't they have uh, computers solving that now? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It would be all solved by computer. 
but it's still a very it's still a very complex equations to solve. It's, it's four partial differential equations. Yeah, you put them into the computer, and it depends on your exact model. You know, where do you start things? So there are some things you can tweak on it to try to match up what we see for the sun. So they're not perfect that you can just say, oh, here's the equations and we solve them. You know, what is the exact central temperature of the sun? You've got to know where you're starting. That's a hard thing to know exactly. You know, we have a pretty good idea, and I'll tell you it's 15 million degrees, but you know, about. You know, a lot of the numbers I give you are very approximate like that. So how do we learn about the interior of the sun? How can we check what we see with these equations? One of the ways, and we do a similar thing on the Earth, is by looking at the vibrations of the sun. We look at how the Earth vibrates when there's an earthquake. So when there is an earthquake, you know, the Earth shakes and seismic waves travel through the Earth. And they go through some areas, they get twisted and turned and bent. And by deciphering those at many locations on the Earth, we can determine what the Earth's structure is like. Because we can only dig, you know, we dig in that little tiny paper thin layer on the Earth. We can't dig down to the core and find out what's really there. It's much too deep. So we use different methods to do that. And we do the same kind of thing on the sun. The sun sets up vibrations inside. And that's what this is showing is a combination of redshift and blue shift. So as things are coming out towards you or going in, you can get a whole complex series of vibrations on the sun and turn that around in order to determine what the sun might be like inside. So determine where there are areas of much higher density and where there are areas of lower density, we can sort of turn that around and do that to determine what the sun is like inside. So it's one of our methods of figuring out what's, what's, what's there in the sun. We can only look at the outer surface. You know, we can't go look at the interior of the sun. Well, one, one way, we, one part way we have some idea. We'll talk about at the very end of class. But for the most part, we can only see what's on the surface of the sun. We can't tell what's going down, what's going on deep inside. We have to make a model that says, here's what might be going on. And that model should make predictions that says, OK, if this is what's going on and I do it, what should, what should the outside look like? And that's the sort of thing we can see. We can see only the outer edges and see these kind of Doppler shifts where some parts of the sun are oscillating. It would go, you know, one's going in, one's going out, and then later it would be switched the other way around. They'd bounce back and forth. You'd have a nice pattern of oscillations on the sun. And again, that helps us to tell us what the sun might be like inside by looking at how that pattern occurs. And these are some of the things that we get. If you look at those, those equations that I gave you, and you solve them, you can find out what the temperature, in this case, shows the temperature and the density. So what is the temperature of the sun as you go from the center to the surface? How does that change? And how does the density of the sun change as you go from the center to the surface? Everything's concentrated at the center, right? That's where all the heat is, all the gravity is. So if you look at temperature, the temperature peaks up here at about 15 million degrees and goes down relatively to zero at the surface, right? Compared to 15 million degrees, what's 6,000 degrees? Still incredibly hot for us. But if you're comparing it to 16 million at the, at the center, well, that's freezing out there. It's bitterly cold compared to the 15 million at the center. But this is what we kind of thing we get by solving those equations. We can get at each location what the temperature is and how it changes. The density, remember I told you overall the density of the sun was about that of water. It's not uniform. 
Now, it's not the same all throughout. It's extremely dense at the core. Material is very highly compressed together. So even at these high temperatures, it's very highly compressed together and would be about 100, what do we get, about 130, 140. 130, 140 times that of water. So water's density on this scale would be a 1, you know, way down here. At the density at the center, at the center of the sun would be a hundred, more than 100 times that. So particles are very, have, yeah, very tightly packed together. But it's still a gas. Even though you've got that density, much denser than water, it's still a gas because everything is moving so fast because you have these incredibly high temperatures. So not only is it packed together very, very densely, crushed together, but everything is moving still very quickly. So even though you have, again, densities hundreds of times that of water, you still have a gas in the center. It would still behave just like a gas, even at that density. So this is kind of the results, what you'd get out of that, out of those equations. Put all those equations into the computer, put your initial conditions in, what things, are, what things start like, what you observe, and then you can make your predictions and you can solve the equations to find out how the stars change. And this is one way to kind of experiment and compare it to another star. You can change conditions and say, you know, a bigger star would be hotter at the center, so how does it compare and what would its, how would its temperature change as you went from the center to the out? You know, maybe, you know, instead of being 15 million degrees, it's a hotter star, might be 20 million degrees or 30 million degrees. Some of the stars would get even hotter than the sun. Some of the smaller stars might not get as hot. But we can use that, and we'll talk about that kind of thing later in terms of being able to understand different types of, different types of stars and how the stars change over time. Now, how do we transport the energy? A couple different ways, and we looked at this a little bit last time. The core is the center. That's where the energy is being produced. So that's the prime layer in the interior. That's where all the energy is being produced. So core, that's where the nuclear fusion is going on. Hydrogen is being created, is being smashed together to create helium atoms and releasing a lot of energy. Billions of reactions occurring every second. And that little bit of energy for each reaction adds up in, to all that immense amount of energy that the sun is producing. Now what you have outside, so you've got the core, then you have a zone of radiation or a radiative zone, radiation zone, where the, the energy travels by radiation. So gamma rays or x-rays traveling pretty much through the material. They'll get absorbed and re-emitted as they bump into things because it's so dense. Remember how dense it is down there. You're going to be constantly bumping into things. But they may be absorbed and remitted many times in, term, in terms of getting out there. So they don't just travel at directly at the speed of light. They travel, it, takes, it can take them a long time to actually maneuver their way through that radiative zone. But they're transferred by radiation. That radiation, the gamma ray that was there is absorbed, re-emitted, absorbed, re-emitted many millions of times in terms of that travel. When you get further out, you get to the convective zone which is in which the radiation can travel. It starts to get, it becomes what we call opaque. It's dark to the, to the radiation coming through. Sort of like the walls. You think of one as the glass where it can come straight through. When you get to be opaque, it's like coming through the wall. It can't come through there. And what happens is the energy still has to travel outward and it now travels so by convection. So the energy, the heating up from the bottom 
heats up material at the bottom of the zone to make it a little bit hotter than the rest. That causes it to rise. It cools off or transfer, and transfers its heat to the next level and then sinks back down. So it forms a convective pattern. Do the same thing in a room, right? When you heat up the room, the heat rises, cools off, and sinks. And you'll get a big convective pattern in a, in a room the same way that you get here in the sun. And it will continue outwards. You'll get a few set of convective zones until you get to the very surface of the sun, as we call the surface, the photosphere. And that's where the radiation is now released. Finally, it escapes from the sun and can actually get out to the rest of the universe. So it can actually travel out to the rest of the universe. Here's somebody. Oh, yep. So it can actually get out to the rest of the universe. But it can take it tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years from the time it is produced in the core. It can take it a long time to get from the core to actually get to the surface of the sun. Once it gets to the surface, it's easy. It escapes and it gets to us in about eight and a half minutes. But it can take it a very long time to go through the rest of this. It can take it a long time to get through the core, through the radiative zone, through the convective zone, until it finally reaches the photosphere. And that can take, again, a long time for it to get, to get out. Now we can see evidence of the convection zone when we look at the top of the sun. This is the surface of the sun we're looking at now. That's a picture looking down on the sun. And you see all these little, what we, the top of the convective cells, and we call it granulation. So you see like all these little granules in the sun. They're not little teeny tiny ones. The scale there is 5,000 kilometers. So about 3,000 about 3, miles. So you're talking things that are you know, many hundreds to hundreds of miles, hundreds, thousands of miles across. But those are the parts of the convective cells. Nice bright ones are where hot material is just welling up and cooler areas are where material, cooler material is going down. And again, not a big difference in temperature. Hotter material might be hotter by a few hundred degrees, but enough that it is a little bit brighter and will shine up a little bit brighter on an image like this. So we can see brighter areas, especially a couple here, but even throughout, there are some brighter areas and, a, and surrounded by dark. So it's just the hot material welling up, as shown in the diagram there, comes up, cools off, so it gives the heat there, and then it cools off and goes back down. And that's, one of, that's our big piece of evidence that you know, convection occurs in the sun. Again, we can't look into it and see. You know, I can't watch the currents moving. All we can see is this pattern. And the pattern changes over time. It's not constant. These will change, the cells will come and go and fade as the interior of the sun changes a little bit. So, you know, a nice bright convective cell may be right here now, but that may be dark area a week from now or a month from now. They don't stay in exactly the same area. The, con the sun is in a constant state of flux. It's constantly changing. But this is our good, this is our good piece of evidence that the sun does have convection occurring in it because we see this pattern and it's constantly changing. You could almost watch it, you could watch it and you could watch it almost as a bubbly pattern, almost like a boiling from a boiling in a pot with all the bubbles coming up. You can see a similar kind of thing in an active version of this on the sun. Now, how do we learn what's in the sun? We looked at this a little bit a couple about a week or so ago by looking at the spectrum of the sun, taking the light, splitting it out to its component colors, we can actually determine what the sun is made up of. 
So what is the sun actually made up of? We have things like hydrogen. So there's a nice hydrogen line here. Hydrogen here, hydrogen there. But, and hydrogen there, there's four hydrogen lines shown. So we know that the sun has a lot of hydrogen. We can also find helium in the sun, sodium, mercury, iron, calcium, and lots of other elements that are not shown on here. I mean, they're shown in there, but they're not actually labeled. In fact, you can detect essentially every, all of the 91 naturally occurring elements you can actually detect in the sun to some level. Primarily because it's so close, so bright, that we can spread its spectrum out and still get enough light to be able to see it. So what we, can, we can determine what the sun is made up of by, or any star, by studying the lines. What lines do we see? Again, that only tells us what the exterior of the sun is made up of. We get the spectrum of the photosphere, the chromosphere, which is the photosphere is the surface, the chromosphere is the outer, the inner part of the atmosphere. So we can see those, that and we can determine what they're made up of. We can then try to infer what the rest of the sun is made up of. You know, it makes sense that it's pretty well mixed up and that if we're detecting hydrogen and helium primarily on the surface, then that's probably what it's made up of throughout. That's how we think the energy is being produced in the core, hydrogen being fused to helium. If it's made up of you know, carbon in the core, then something would not work. You know, our models would not work. But that's what we do. And in fact, one of the elements here, helium, was actually discovered in the sun. That's how it got its name. Helium, helios for the sun. It was discovered in the spectrum of the sun, and there was no known element on Earth at the time that matched it, that matched that spectrum. So we actually found that pattern in the sun a couple hundred, couple hundred years ago before it was detected on Earth. Then we were able to find it later again on Earth, found helium. We did find helium on Earth again later, but it was not known at the time, several hundred years ago, when this was first detected. So that's how helium got its name, was because it was detected in the sun first, before we knew about it elsewhere. Many of the other elements that we see, again, there's a lot of dark lines there. And we see a little bit of everything in the sun. We see a lot of sodium, we see iron, we see calcium, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, everything else is there. Gold, you know, enough gold in the sun probably to make a nice solid gold earth easily. How you're going to get it out of there and, you know, get it back to be able to, be, to make money on it, I don't know, but it's, but it's there. There is a lot of gold in the sun, a lot of platinum in the sun. If you have a way to go get to the sun and manage to you know, siphon out all just, the, just that type of element, you know, there's a lot of it there. Problem is, it's probably stuck in the be better vaults than you can possibly imagine. Trying to get it out of there would be just about impossible. But we can learn what it's made up of. Spreading out the light out into its spectrum tells us, where those, by those lines, what the sun is actually composed of. So we can learn what the elements are. Now astronomers can go through and study by how intense the lines are, that can tell us how much of it. So this tells us what's there. So right now I can tell you there's iron in the sun, but it doesn't tell you how much. But astronomers have more equations to be able to go and study and say that if this line is such and such a, so strong, the str strength of that line, how dark it is, and you know the temperature of the sun, you can use that to figure out exactly how much iron. You know, what is the concentration of iron in the sun relative to Helium, helium relative to hydrogen. They can actually figure that out. We don't need to worry about that. The idea I want you to get across is primarily that we can see the lines and we can tell what's there. And there are ways to determine 
you know, which elements are present. There are a good way to determine which elements are present. Okay, getting further out, so we did the interior layers. You had the core, the, con- the radiative zone, the convective zone, the photosphere. Above that, we start to get to the atmospheres of the sun. Photosphere, again, is the surface. The chromosphere is above that. Now, normally, you don't see the chromosphere or the outermost atmosphere, the corona, because they're so much fainter than the photosphere that they're blocked out, they're blurred out. I mean, the sun is so bright that trying to look at a faint object near the sun is very hard. You know? Venus is out there right now, right? If the sun's out, it's nice and clear, and the sun's out there, Venus is out, and it's just as far away from the sun as it will be tonight. But when the sun's out there so bright, it overwhelms Venus, and you won't see it. Mercury's right there, too, on the other side of the sun right now. It's visible in the morning. So you can't really just, you can't just necessarily see them easily because they're, so, they're, they're bright, but they're so much fainter than, this, than the so, surface of the sun itself. So one of the times we actually see them, as the picture is showing here, is during an eclipse. So when we get a solar eclipse, it blocks out the photosphere of the sun. It gets dark. And as long as it's a total, total eclipse, has to be a total eclipse, it'll then block out the entire photosphere. And then we can see the chromosphere and the corona and the rest of the detail of the sun, the rest of the information about the sun. Not something we can see just you know, every day. Well, you can. You can make artificial eclipses now. There's a way to make an artificial eclipse you know, within the telescope and block out the light. But typically to study them, the best time to see them is when the moon is covering up the photosphere. And you'll actually will see the sun is not just you know, a solid disk that gets completely blocked out. There's actually an atmosphere around it that is still glowing. So you'll actually see this glow around the moon. You wouldn't normally expect that because the moon wouldn't have an atmosphere. So if it was, the sun was just a solid disk, it would be completely blocked out. It's not. We actually get that little glow around it, and that is the atmosphere of the sun. The chromosphere is actually a little bit cooler than the photosphere. Photosphere is about 6,000 degrees. Chromosphere is probably about 4,500 degrees. Still incredibly hot you know, for us. 4,500 degrees is still a lot warmer than we're ever going to see here. You know. But it's a lot cooler than the surface of the sun. Within the chromosphere, we get little storms. You start to get storms. We looked at storms on Jupiter. We looked at storms on Neptune. You get storms on the sun. One of these are the spicules. And you can see some of these almost just like spikes kind of sticking up. The sun, when you look at it in detail and look at it close, has a lot more going on than you tend to think about normally. I mean, you look at the sun, oh, it's nice and smooth surface. You know, as, as Aristotle said you know, hundreds of years ago, and you know, Galileo found the sunspots to prove that wrong. But the sun is actually a very active surface and constant storm swirling of material around that surface. And again, we're looking at very, very big areas here. You have to remember, we're talking you know, 3,000 kilometers. That's about 3,000 kilometers, or about, what, 18, 1,800 miles? So it's a very big area. I mean, everything's real big. The sun is so much bigger. Everything is very, very large on the sun. When you talk about things like sunspots, which we'll come back to in a few minutes, and these sort of storms, the spicules, they're very large relative to you know, things we're used to here on Earth. You know, some of these storms can be bigger than the Earth itself. We had the great red spot on Jupiter was as big as the Earth. There's many sunspots that can be as large as the, as large as the Earth or larger.
But these are just an example, and this is a small storm. This isn't a big storm or anything. There's actually larger things that occur in terms of solar flares and prominences that are much more material. These are the relatively mild storms. These go on all the time, but during periods of solar activity, it gets even worse. You get even more active, even bigger storms that occur. And that's when you tend to get most of the sunspot activity. The corona is the outermost. So we've gone through all the layers from the core out to the corona. The corona, again, can only be seen during an eclipse. And you've got to block now the photosphere and the chromosphere. So you need a pretty good eclipse that's blocked out, not just the photosphere, but the moon's actually maybe a little bit closer to us, so it actually blocks out the chromosphere as well. And then you can see the outermost atmosphere of the sun. And that's what we call the corona. The corona is extremely hot. You know, we've gone through this range of temperatures. We started at 15 million degrees, went down to 6,000, then about 4,500. All of a sudden, it shoots back up when you get to the corona. Corona gets incredibly hot, about 1 to 2 million degrees. So it shoots back up to an incredibly high temperature. But there aren't a lot of particles there. Now, if you remember what temperature is really telling you, temperature is just telling you how fast the particles are moving. Higher the temperature, faster the particles are moving. So in, this, in the room, you know, if you heat up the particles and make them move faster, the temperature is going to register higher. Same thing happens in the sun. At the center of the sun, things are moving incredibly quickly, very high temperature. As you get further out, things slow down. They're still moving a lot faster than they are in this room, in the 6,000 degrees. But when you go out to the outer atmosphere of the sun, we're also, again, somehow increasing the speed of those particles. So the particles in the outer atmosphere, in the corona, are whipping around very, very quickly and actually register temperatures of you know, 1 to 2 million degrees. It wouldn't feel hot if you were to put your hand out there, though. Right? It's 1 to 2 million degrees. It should burn you, right? But there's so few particles. It's the density has gotten so low that instead of the density of this atmosphere, you know, our atmosphere at 1 million degrees, Okay, we're, we're fried instantly, right? But the, this is so little dense that there's you know, a particle here and a particle here. There's, there's only scattered particles around, so it wouldn't, you know, you can't stick your coffee cup out there to heat it up. It's not going to do anything. There's not enough density of particles to actually heat anything. Do it at the center, it'll work, right? If you could put your coffee cup at the center, well, other than vaporizing it instantly, you know, it would heat up. But if you do try to do that in the corona, it is one to two million degrees, but there's not enough density of particles to actually heat up anything. Now here's the picture showing that, showing the temperature. And this is how the temperature of the sun, cha uh, sun changes with distance above the photosphere. So we're not looking down into the core. The core and everything else and all those parts that we talked about earlier are down here. This is the photosphere at about 6,000 degrees. And it starts to cool off, which is what you would expect, right? You get further away from the center of the sun, it starts to get cooler and cooler and cooler, and it makes sense. It should slowly get cooler as you get further away. And it does out into the chromosphere, but then it levels off, and it actually starts to shoot up again. And when you get out to the corona, you're talking one to maybe two million degrees of temperature. It gets very, very hot again. Now, as I said, that's particles moving quickly. So there has to be some mechanism that is causing these particles to accelerate and move faster and faster as you get higher up into the corona. And probably what it is is something to do with the sun's magnetic field. Magnetic fields are very good at accelerating charged particles. If you move, and move a magnetic field, you can accelerate a particle with an electrical charge. Things that the corona is made up of could be electrons, could be protons, 
could be the nuclei of atoms, which would all have a positive charge. The electrons would have a negative charge. And if you whip magnetic field lines through them, as the sun rotates and the magnetic fields twist around, you could actually cause them to accelerate. And that's probably the mechanism that actually heats, them, actually heats up the corona. And again, it's not a hot temperature that you'd go feel. It's a hot temperature because of the quick movement of the particles, of how fast those particles are moving when you get out into these areas. And those particles in the corona are just moving incredibly quickly. And then eventually they actually escape, they will escape from the sun and reach the Earth. So you actually get part of the solar wind comes through you know, parts of the corona and escape, where material escapes from it mm-hmm. and then gets out to us to form the aurora and all of, that, all of that wonderful stuff that we get to see here. Sunspots. Sunspots, here we see again, again we're looking at really big sizes. This is a sunspot grouping up here, 50,000 kilometers across. We're getting real big, those are really, really big, really, really big sizes. This is a close-up of one sun, of a sunspot about 10,000 kilometers across. So they're very, very large. You're talking things that are the size of the Earth. You know, some of them, some of them the size of the Earth, some a little smaller, some could actually be bigger than the Earth. They look dark on the sun, but they're really still very hot. They look dark only because they're a little bit cooler than the rest of the surface of the sun. So the surface of the sun is about 6,000 degrees. And if you go into a sunspot, it might be 500, 1,000 degrees cooler. Now, still hot, right? Still very hot, but much, much cooler than, the, than what it's, what's around it, so it tends to look darker. If you could somehow scoop that sunspot material out and put it out in space, it would glow nice, bright, reddish orange. It's cooler than the sun, so it looks dark, but it's really incredibly hot. It's not like a window or anything where you can look deeper into the sun. You're not seeing any deeper into the sun. It's just a cooler area on the surface. But again, take that material, put it out in space, if you had some way to do that, and it would glow very brightly. It's still incredibly hot. It's still, you know, 4,500, 5,000 degrees. Now the sunspots there, you see the one in the top, they do come in pairs. We'll look at that again in a little bit too. They tend to come in big pairs. And you can get a lot of little sunspots. This is what you're tending to see over the coming year. This is what we'll be seeing, a lot of sunspots, because the sun is reaching a very active point in its cycle. And we'll look at that cycle here in just a few minutes. But you'll see the sunspots are kind of split into areas. You notice that there's a darker area and a less dark area. The names might sound familiar. The darker area is called the umbra. Lighter area is called the penumbra. Sound familiar from eclipses, right? Way, way back. I know, we forgot. That was first exam. We forgot it all already, right? Till the final. But you may recognize the names. It's the same name. One is just the darker area of the sunspot. One is the lighter area. Has nothing to do with the shadow or an eclipse or anything else. It's just the darker area is the umbra, the very dark area, which was the very dark shadow and eclipse. And the penumbra was the lighter area around. So that's the lighter area. So you look up in here, you'll see some darker areas, which would be the umbra of the spot, and you'll see some lighter, some lighter areas around that are not quite as dark. And that would be the penumbra. Now sunspots don't last for a very long time. We talked about that great red spot, right? Hundreds of years worth there. Sunspots don't last that long. Sunspots last a few days, a week, a couple weeks. 
and then they disappear. So they'll come and go. They do come in pairs. As they're shown here, you tend to get a north sunspot and a south sunspot. And they're magnetic. So really what they are is magnetic fields from the sun. The sun's magnetic field, instead of being that nice smooth magnetic field, I think we looked, maybe looked at, no, if we looked at, that's not going to work. If we look at something like the Earth, you know, the Earth has a nice magnetic field like this. Right? Nice smooth magnetic field. The sun doesn't do that. The sun's magnetic field over time gets all twisted up. And one of the reasons for that is that the Earth rotates like a ball, right? The whole thing rotates together. The sun doesn't do that. Remember we talked about that very first slide of this uh, last time, very first slide of this chapter last time said that it takes about 25 days to go around once at the equator of the sun, but it takes over 30 days to go at the pole. So after a couple of rotations, it only takes a couple of months and all of a sudden the pole, the, the, or sorry, the equator of the sun is now a whole lap ahead of the poles. And that just keeps building up. So instead of these lines, the magnetic field lines going nice and smooth, the magnetic field lines get twisted up as well. As they get twisted and twisted and more times over, over a couple of years that happens, they end up so tangled and they start to get twisted and they pop out. So they kind of bulge out through the sun. And where they bulge out, they bulge out at a south and come back in at a north pole. So that's why sunspots tend to appear in pairs. You get the magnetic field lines coming out of one, magnetic field lines going back into the other. And we think that it's the magnetic field as it hits the sunspots that is doing something to that in this case the magnetic field is doing something to cool off the sunspot. So the intense the concentration of the magnetic field there actually serves apparently to cool off that material. Now this is an example shown here is actually a picture of the sun. Others are sketches. This is actually showing material on the sun in a prominence as material has gone up it's following right along those magnetic field lines. Those, those charged particles like to follow along the magnetic field. So they actually illuminate the magnetic field lines for us. You may have seen something similar to like this with a bar magnet. If you ever did it in a science class with a bar magnet and iron filings, and you can actually see the, you can see the uh, magnetic field lines. You know, they're not visible normally, right? The magnet's sitting there. They're there, but you can't see them. But by getting the iron filings to try to follow the right pattern, you can see them. Well, here we can see them on the sun because the particles, the ionized gases that are there in the sun, actually follow along those magnetic field lines and show them, show them to us. So this is an example you'd have coming from one sunspot into another sunspot, following that material through it. But again, they do not last very long. Few days, few weeks at the most, and then sunspots will come and go. So they'll disappear, they'll appear for a few weeks, we'll watch them travel around the sun, you know, maybe they'll come around, maybe they'll go around and come back and we'll see them for one orbit of the sun, and then they disappear and new sunspots will appear. So it's a constantly changing surface. The number of sunspots also changes. Sometimes we see lots of them. Right now we're at a time when we're tending to see more sunspots than average. A few years ago there were hardly any. You could go weeks or months without seeing a sunspot at all. So there is something going on deep within the sun that causes this cycle that we'll be looking at here in a few minutes. Okay. Now here's the picture sort of showing what I was trying to demonstrate earlier with the lines. 
if we started out with a nice smooth magnetic field, slowly, remember, 25 days, and what was it, 32, 35 days, I think, by the time you get way up to there, I think about 35 days. It doesn't take very many rotations before all of a sudden you've got these magnetic field lines really twisted up. The more, and as you do that over you know, a couple months, you might get one twist, but then keep doing it for three months, six months, 12 months, a year, two years, three years. It gets more and more twisted up. And you start to get these little places where the, where the magnetic field lines will actually bulge out. They'll pop out through the surface and make it and become visible. You know, normally you don't see the magnetic field lines. When they pop through the sun's surface, you're going to see them because they're going to have an effect on the sun itself. So this is what we think happens with the magnetic field line. It start out nice and smooth, and then because the equator is rotating faster, you'd get, this would be dragged ahead and the poles are rotating slower, and eventually it would be, you know, a rotation, two rotations, three rotate, four, five, eventually you'd be many rotations behind. And this is what we think leads to the sunspot cycle that gives us this cycle which lasts about 11 years for the sunspots where they come and go. So the sunspots over an 11 year cycle come from almost nothing to a very high period of thought of sunspots back to nothing again over about an 11 year cycle. And that's what we're showing you here is that if we look over the last 100 years it's a pretty regular cycle. Peaks are different but you get a peak here, about 11 years later, about 11 years later, 11 years, 11, every 11 years, you get a peak in the number of sunspots that you see. So an average monthly number of sunspots that are counted, and you see you know, less at certain times and more at certain times. It's a very pretty, pretty regular 11-year cycle. They also, where you, where you see them also varies. Up here is showing you what we call the butterfly diagram. You've got to look at it kind of sideways, and you've got the two butterfly wings, right? Butterfly wing, the blue is going right through the wings of the butterfly, the line would be the body. But what it's saying is that when the sunspots first start appearing, as you're at the very minimum, the sunspots occur much higher latitudes on the sun. They occur closer to the poles. 30, 40 degrees is more likely. As you get towards the peak, and then on the way out, they tend to form closer and closer to the equator. So at the end of a sunspot cycle, all the sunspots are forming very close to the equator. On the average, you can see there's some variation in there, but if you look on the average, there's certainly a dis distinct change in where the sunspots are occurring in you know, 1935, as this is showing, as to where they were you know, half a cycle later, 1941, they were definitely much closer to the equator of the, equator of the sun. So again, this all goes into our understanding of it with magnetic fields. It's not something we completely understand and can give you an exact answer for, to tell you, you know, how exactly the mechanism. I'm giving you a rough idea of what we think occurs. But it's not something, again, as you'll find out as we get further and further in this course, it's one of those things that we don't completely understand. So I told you it's an 11-year cycle. I lied. It's a 22-year cycle, really. Because what happens in between you get that cycle 11 years, it peaks. And it did peak every 11 years, that was. But they also change. If you remember, I, saw, I showed you we had a north sunspot and a south sunspot, right? So when we looked at them, you had, you know, you had a pair of sunspots up here and you had maybe a north and a south. In the southern hemisphere, you would have had a south and a north. 
And all the sunspots north of the equator would have had that. The north sunspot would have been leaving as they rotate around the sun. Eleven years later, you're getting another peak of the sunspot cycle, except now the sun's poles have flipped. So now you had, this was the north magnetic pole and the south magnetic pole, say. Now it's south and north. So the entire magnetic cycle as we understand it actually takes 22 years. Because you flip in between each of those, you flip the north and south poles of the sun actually flip. So right now you can have, say it's north and south. 11 years from now, if we come and measure the magnetic field of the sun, the south pole is going to be up here and the north pole is going to be down here. Yeah? And that's due to something going on deep inside the sun. It happens on the Earth too. Our north and south poles flip. Now not the whole Earth flipping, just the magnetic part. So we, we, there are times when the north magnetic pole is in Antarctica and the south magnetic pole is up in you know, Canada, northern Canada. Where it is now. Not completely. There's something that goes on. But it does occur not on this short of a scale on the Earth. It's many tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years, but they can actually look at the, the sediments in the sea, in the sea, and they're aligned differently at different times. When you look at ones that were formed, you know, 50,000 years ago, they're aligned one way as compared to stuff that's formed now, as compared to stuff that was formed, you know, 200,000 years ago. Does it, does it happen cleanly, or is there some sort of like disturbance? There has to probably be some sort of disturbance in the middle that would, as it would change. I can't see it just flip all of a sudden, but I'm not. Magnetic fields are not my specialty, so I won't, I won't lie. I won't, say, I won't say yes for sure that's how it is. It could be a sudden thing, but I mean, in the sun, it occurs relatively quickly. You know, it only takes, you, I, what I'm thinking is you get the sun so tangled up that at some point in there, it just resets itself. Now, I can't believe, it's not going to be instantaneous. I would think it would take a certain amount of time, but I, don't, I couldn't tell you whether that's days, weeks, months, or, you know, like that. But it would take a certain amount of time to be able to reset itself. So that's the 22-year cycle. That's the magnetic cycle of the sun. So every 11, in year, every 11 years, the sunspots come and go. Although you notice, now I looked, we looked at this part earlier, and you do notice that they don't always get as many sunspots. We don't always get as much activity on the sun. So. There were some areas here in the early 1900s where it was lower. Early 1800s, very low. And when you go back here to the late 1600s to early 1700s, almost nothing. In fact, there was a period there of, what was it, about 40, 50 years where there were hardly any sunspots. You know? Fortunately, Galileo observed before this and saw the sunspots before it so that people had looked for them. But there was this long period here called the Maunder Minimum where there were hardly any sunspots for an extended, not just for years, but like we missed a couple cycles. Now this could be something related. Does the sun eventually go through such a cycle that it has to completely reset itself and do something that takes, you know, no time for the sun out of, five billion, out of 10 billion years, you know, what's 50? But for us, a very long period of time. And this does have an effect on the Earth. Because this Maunder Minimum is also a time that was known as the Little Ice Age in Europe. It was a very cold time on the Earth. There were very few sunspots. So there is a relationship between the sunspot activity and level and the temperature on the Earth. The more sunspots there are, the more active the sun is, the more heat we're getting, and the hotter it's going to be. 
Whereas in this period, it tended to be colder on the average for that 50 year period. Yeah? No. I, mean, I can tell you when the peak is going to be, but I can't go out and tell you that if you go out and look two weeks from Tuesday, <laughs> two weeks from now, that it's going to be a lot of sunspots. You know, I can't tell you that. It could be, we, we're, even though we're heading towards an active period of the sun, you know, when we're getting more active, there's still going to be days where there's nothing on the sun, nothing visible. So as far as we know, it's still It seems to be, it has the overall statistical cycle. Yes, it's going to peak every 11 years. But I can't tell you, you know, what's going to happen Tomorrow. It's, that, that we don't, you, you, there's no way to tell that. You know, I can't tell you if this kind of thing is going to happen again. You know, we're coming towards a peak. We've been getting more and more sunspots recently. But I can't tell you that the next cycle, all of a sudden, you know, we seem to have these little lower areas here and then here and then here. Are we going to have one of those coming up again? You know, it's, it's, very, it's, you know, it's very random. And in things like this, you know, for the sun, if you probably average that out over the life of the sun, you know, it's just all the same to it, but to us seeing the, dif seeing the differences, it's a little bit different. Okay. Questions? All right, so some of the things that we see here is a prominence, which is actually a big sheet of material that gets ejected from the surface of the sun. So you can sort of imagine that magnetic field almost popping out and those magnetic field lines just shoving material out into space. So that would be a solar prominence. And a flare would be something, something similar. And you're looking here in detail. That's got to be, those are, all, those are all looking at the hydrogen light. And here you're looking, I don't know how well you can see that, but the surface of the sun is about like this. That's sort of just part of the surface. So you're looking at one little portion here. And then you can see the intense material sort of flaring up as a magnetic field is just pushing that material up. Again, everything on the sun is either positively or negatively charged. You don't have a lot of atoms on the sun like we have on Earth. It's so hot that most of the electrons have been stripped from their atoms. And so when these magnetic fields go, there's all these charged particles and it can just push big chunks of material out into space. And that's what we're seeing there. This is an example of a, an example of a prominence. Now when you're looking here, when you look in the H-alpha, you're seeing the active sun. When you're looking at that hydrogen light, sorry, should have said. You actually see these brighter spots those are the sunspots. So the sunspots look bright in this. You're looking only at one specific wavelength. You're getting an intenser emission, in this case, of the hydrogen than you normally would. But it, it does make the sun stand out, and it's a lot safer to look at. In fact, there are specific filters for the sun that just look at this light because this is a very red light, and it doesn't damage. It's not, not as damaging to your eyes. You know, it filters out all the other lights on it. So there's very specific filters that only let through a narrow part of the spectrum and only let you look at it in that line. Yeah. They're in the photosphere and into the chromosphere. Yeah. So this is sort of the photosphere here. The photosphere is really just that very thin surface. So when they're occurring, they're pushing up into the chromosphere. And then when you go further out, you'll get into the corona. Okay. Solar flare is sort of an extreme version, even more. The prominence occurs on a slower scale, so it pushes the material out, but it might take it a few days to push it out. A uh, solar flare does the same thing, but boom, all of a sudden it pushes that material out. So it's a much more intense activity. And these are the things that really cause material to escape from the sun. You know, you're pushing material out at a very high speed. And when you hear about a solar flare, that's when we're likely to see the aurora here. 
That's when it's going to send a big stream of particles if it happens to be directed towards the Earth. Now sometimes, of course, it's directed, you know, we're sitting here and it's directed out that way or that way or that way or that way. We're never going to see, we're not going to get any intensity from that. But we will when one is directed in the Earth's general direction. We'll actually get an intense particles from the sun. They get funneled around our magnetic fields. And then we'll see the aurora right around the poles, around the North Pole and the South Pole of the Earth. And that's when you get something very energetic like a flare. And those are occurring much more rapidly now. Yeah? Do the uh, solar flares sometimes uh, interfere with certain telescopes? They won't really interfere with telescopes so much as they will with like communications. They can more you know, disrupt communications like with the intense. Yeah. But in terms of just the amount of light, they're not really going to affect anything in terms of a telescope. In terms of a telescope. I mean, you'd get the aurora, yeah, if you're getting brighter where you're happening to look, that might you know, affect you if the atmosphere is getting brighter, but not a major issue. And in fact, most of the telescopes are well away from places where you see the aurora now. But they do, they can disrupt you know, radio communications. There was a very large flare, or sort of the next extreme, which we call a CME, a coronal mass ejection, which really sends even, even more intense than a flare that sends material out towards the Earth. The last major real big one that hit the Earth been, what, about 160, 150, 160 years ago. And that apparently at the time you know, wiped out the telegraphs and you know, wiped a lot of instrumentation now. Now hopefully we're better shielded now, but we also have a lot of stuff up in space. So there's no reason to say that one directed right at the Earth would not you know, fry a lot of communication satellites and you know, make cell phones and things you know, not, as, not as useful <laughs> as, they are, as they are today. So it could cause you know, major, major issues to us if one of, those major, one of those big ones were to hit us. The nice little ones like the flares you know, brighten up the sky for us. When you get a real big one, it can actually cause some, cause some damage. We can detect them, but there's nothing you can do as they're happening. You can't, I can't tell you one's going to happen. You know, a year from now, we're going to have a real big one. Well, you know, on the scale, we're probably due for one. But again, it's a probability type thing. So we're due for one, or we've been due for one you know, in the last 10 years, but you know, it's like rolling the dice. You roll the dice, and you roll a 1 and a 1 and a 1 and a 1. Well, your odds of rolling a 1 the next time are the same. You, know, it's, you don't know. Question, sir? It would take the, ener the electromagnetic energy would take about eight and a half minutes. The rest would take a few, a few hours to a day, depending on how fast the particles. The particles will move slower than light, so you're taking a few hours. Depending on how fast things are coming, I would think. I think they're usually, you know, you can tell they're. You've got, you've got, a, you've got a few an hours to a day's warning. You know, it's not going to be many days. It's not going to take you a week to get there. It'll take it somehow 12 out, 12, 12, 14 hours to stick in my mind, but. That might not, I might be something and something wrong. So if that, say that happens, your possibility is to shut down all the satellites or something like that? You might be able to, but I don't know if it would still fry the electronics. If you've got all the stuff, whether they're active or not. I mean, you would have some warning. It's not, you know, it's not just the eight and a half minutes, because you'd see the light from it coming first. The light would get here first. And you'd see that after eight and a half minutes then you'd have a few hours behind that to know that something's coming. But I don't know if there's enough time or if even you know, turning off the satellite is going gonna, is gonna to stop it from being fried and allow it to be reactivated. That was called the coronal... Coronal mass ejection, CME. They, still, they do occur. We haven't ha we've had them since then. We just haven't had a real big one directed at the Earth. There are smaller ones, too, which wouldn't cause quite as much damage.
And in fact, there it is. <laughs> These emit a large number of charges. This is the CME, coronal mass ejection, sending a large number of charged particles off towards the Earth. So a large number of charged particles. So it's sort of, you had the prominences, which were very slow. You had the flares, which were even bigger. And you have these that are even much larger. And when you get something like this, you really disrupt the Earth's magnetic field. You can really disrupt the Earth's magnetic field more. So you're actually going to get things like aurora. When, when this one occurred in the 18, it was right before the Civil War, late 1850s probably. It would have been, it, apparently you could see aurora in Hawaii. Now you don't normally see aurora in Hawaii. That's way down towards the equator. Usually you see the aurora up in northern latitudes. But apparently you could see the aurora down that far south. That it was that intense, disrupted the Earth's magnetic field that much. You know, what would it do to a set? I don't know. It could really cause some damage. Or are things maybe shielded better and it may not cause as much damage? It's, you know, it's sort of one of those things that we're not going to know until it, <laughs> until it happens. And hopefully we don't have to worry about it. You know, maybe the odds are it'll be another 100, 200 years. You know, probabilities work that way. You never, you never know when the next one is going to occur. But that's the CMEs that we were talking about there. It's just a big ejection of material out into space from the sun. And again, if the Earth is over here at the time, it doesn't matter. Right? It gets sent out there, but it's going the other direction. It can bother another planet. It's only if it happens to be directed right at us. They're not over the entire surface of the sun. They're very focused. So it'll go in a general direction. If that happens, you know, if the Earth is right in the path of it, that's when we'll have the major issue. Is that showing that it, it disrupts our, our magnetic field? Yeah. It would disrupt our magnetic field. All these charged particles coming in would disrupt. That's why I mentioned that instead of the aurora only being visible really up in the northern latitudes, you could actually get a lot of charged particles and you can get aurora visible down in you know, southern Florida, Hawaii, things that are much further south than you're used to being able to see in aurora. So what's the recovery timeline? Or even for the, the magnetic field, it wouldn't take, very, wouldn't take very long for it to recover. It would disrupt it and it would, the magnetic field would spring back relatively quickly. Days, weeks, I'm thinking. I would think it wouldn't take very long. I mean, the, any damage that it did would still be there. But in terms of the Earth's magnetic field, once, this, once these particles go zipping through, once they're gone, there's nothing to distort the magnetic field again. It's going to spring back. What's the size, the size of, a, of a CME that would cause well, this much disruption? Well, I mean, the Earth to scale would be a little tiny dot here. If this is the sun, there's, there's the surface of the sun. That's actually the surface of the sun. So the, sun, the Earth would be about a pixel on here, but one little square. So I mean, these, are, these are tremendous. What's the measurement, though? I don't have a number off the top of my head I can give you. No. It would be many times bigger than the Earth. I can give you that, but I couldn't give you an exact. You know, I can't tell you how many thousands or hundreds of thousands of kilometers off the top of my head. All right, this is my last question. That's OK. But um, you said that it would sort of just like run through the Earth with the particles and yeah, the particles that would hit the Earth, I mean, some of the particles would hit the Earth, but you can see it's not going to be just the Earth's size. I mean, it's not focused so narrowly. It would cover and we'd get hit by some of the particles and the rest of it would go around the Earth. And, you know, we wouldn't get hit by all of it. It would just keep going. Yeah. I mean, the part that hit us wouldn't, wouldn't. I mean, obviously, some of these particles are going to smash into the Earth and smash into the magnetic field, but anything that was way up here is probably just going to go right by. Anything that's way down here is going to go right by. No, it's going to be bigger than the actual Earth itself. Okay? Questions? All right. 
And then the solar wind. And I mentioned this, this is sort of the solar wind. This, the solar magnetic field gets very complicated out here. We have what we call coronal holes. So, and what they are is really the magnetic field of the sun tends to be bubbled up like this. And again, it's not nice and pretty as the Earth's one. The Earth's one is very nice, smooth, looks like a little bar magnet. The sun's gets much more complicated. Some of these magnetic fields, lines just extend off into space. And that sort of leaves you a hole by which materials can escape. Right? Charged particles don't want to cross these magnetic field lines. So if particles are escaping from the surface here, they're sort of trapped to the sun. They're kept to the sun. Charged particles from the surface here are free to escape out into space. And that's what we call the solar wind. That's the general, you know, the general typical aurora that we see all the time are just caused by the solar wind coming out. Comes out constantly. The locations of those holes will vary as the magnetic field it constantly is in flux, constantly changing. But you can actually see that there's areas here. These are taken in x-rays, so we're not looking at the surface of the sun anymore. We're looking at the very outer corona. Corona is very high temperature, emits a lot of x-rays. So what we see there, again, is the x-ray image. And you can see sort of this hole in it. And that's where material is able to stream out. So it's very dark in x-rays. You're seeing closer down to the surface. And that's those areas of those holes. That's where the solar wind escapes. That's the general. You know, the general aurora that you see is usually just the charged particles from the sun. These aren't the extra energetic ones. These aren't the flares. These aren't the prominences. These aren't the CMEs. These are just the slower process of the process of materials coming out. Okay. And the corona changes. Now the corona is the, again that very outermost atmosphere. Along as, as the sunspot cycle, it changes. It looks very nice and smooth when you're at a minimum of the sunspot cycle. It gets bigger as the sun gets more active. Okay, so it sort of relates to what we, how we think it's formed. It's formed by those, or at least energized by the magnetic field. When the sun's magnetic field gets more active, it heats up the particles more and the, the corona will tend to expand and get larger and also more irregular. Where is it going to be more intense is where the stronger magnetic field is. If there's a weaker magnetic field, you're not going to see as much. So it's all th we think it's all related to that magnetic field. So right now we're getting to the point where if we had a nice total solar eclipse right now, where you'd see a very active corona. Wouldn't be that nice smooth round one that I showed you earlier. It would be much more active, much more irregular in shape. So where, where the magnetic field is more intense, you're going to get more intense activity in the corona. Okay. So, now we've got to go way down to the interior of the sun. We'll get through most of it. Okay. Now, so this, we talked about the sun. We went through all the different layers, and now we're going to go back, back to the core where we started out. What we need to do is we're going to look at how the energy, how is the energy of the sun produced? And the method is you take two protons and you smash them together. And you eventually, you stick, eventually you stick four of them together. If you take four protons together, you can make a helium nucleus. It goes in stages. We'll look at that on the next slide. But in order to get these protons close together, they're both positively charged. So as you bring two positive charges close together, what do they want to do? They want to push each other apart. They don't want to go close together. They don't want to combine. You have to smash them together really, really hard. You've got to get them extremely close together 
That's 10 to the minus 15th meters. You don't need to know the number, just extremely close together. So you've got to smash them really close together. The only way you can do that is if you have a high temperature. They have to be moving very, very quickly so that they get close enough together fast enough before they, start, before they push each other apart. That they've got enough momentum coming in to actually collide together. Once you get closer than that 10 to the minus 15 meters, there's another force that kicks in. Right? Electromagnetic force pushes things apart. There's what we call a nuclear force. In this case, it's a strong, a strong nuclear force, which actually causes protons to stick together if they get close enough. So it's not a very strong force when you have a proton here and a proton here. But when you've got them almost touching each other, then, they stick, then they'll stick together. Then they're, they're, that's, that force is now stronger than their repulsion of their two positive charges. Just like they'd have a gravitational force between them, right? Gravity is pulling the two protons together, some small, tiny amount. But when they get close together, that gets overwhelmed by the electromagnetic force pushing them apart because they're both positive charges. When you get them close enough, they'll actually stick together. You've got to get them moving at incredibly high speeds. That's that 10 million degrees you need minimally to get them to collide. And you need a pretty high density. You need them all real close together. That's what happens at the center of the sun. You have a lot of protons at 15 million degrees. We're a little over this at the sun. And they're moving at incredibly high speeds. And then you can collide. And the first step in the chain is two protons moving incredibly quickly, colliding together. They form, not helium yet, it takes a couple steps to get to helium. They form what we call a deuteron, which is heavy hydrogen. right? It's hydrogen with a proton and a neutron. Now if you look at that, you had a positive charge coming in and a positive charge coming in. A deuteron is a proton and a neutron. Well, that's got one positive charge. So you had two positive charges coming in and one coming out. Something's wrong, right? Can't lose charge. It's got to go someplace. Well, there's two other particles here. One is the positron. Positron is exactly like an electron. In fact, it isn't. It's an electron with a positive charge. It's an anti-electron. It forms antimatter. So when these two form together, these two collide together, you get a deuteron that comes out, and you get a little tiny piece of antimatter, positron, positively charged electron. Well, antimatter doesn't last very long in, in, in with normal matter. There's an electron anywhere near it, boom, they annihilate each other and, for, and create energy. So this little piece will actually annihilate and creates a lot of the energy that we see in the sun. The other piece that we see is the neutrino. Neutrino comes out. Neutrinos are very interesting. It's little neutral one is actually what it means. So it's a little tiny neutral, doesn't have any charge. So we've already got our charges balanced. We've got two positive charges coming in and two positive charges coming out. Our mass is pretty much balanced because we had two protons and there's a proton and a neutron. That's about the same amount of mass. The neutrino comes out. The interesting thing about neutrinos is that they don't interact with matter. They go right through the sun. So the neutrinos that are produced at the center of the sun right now actually come streaming right out of the sun and get to Earth eight and a half minutes later. The problem is they don't interact. They're very rarely interacting with anything. So they can stream through that entire, entire density of the sun. They can also stream through the entire density of the Earth without really doing much. They just travel off into space. We can detect a few of them. We can detect you know, the one in a billion, one in a trillion, one in 10 trillion times that they interact. We can detect those few interactions. And that gives us our one look at the core of the sun. That's our one way to actually see something coming straight from the core of the sun. 
All the other energy that we see, you know, this, these, these hydrogen at these atoms, they're all trapped in the center of the sun. They're not coming out. This positron, it annihilates that electron, but it never actually comes out. Now, let me see. Well, let's see if we can... This is essentially the stage, the process that occurs. Now, we looked at the first stage of this already. Two protons collide together, form a deuterium atom. There's the positron that annihilates with an electron and forms gamma rays. There's a lot of the energy from the sun right there. And that neutrino comes straight out. So imagine that happening twice. So you have one here, one up here. Same, same exact same thing occurring. Then what happens is you form this deuterium. Deuterium smashes together even easier than hydrogen. So you get these two deuterium atom colliding with a proton. All those protons running around. And that starts to form helium, helium-3. Helium-3 is not the regular helium we're used to. Helium-3 is helium with two protons and one neutron. So you smash together, and again, in stages, you form helium-3. The helium-3 will smash together, forms helium-4. That's the normal, ordinary helium that we know. And two more protons coming off at very high speeds. These two protons go right back into the cycle. And this, this sort of thing occurs many millions of times, many millions or billions of times every second in the sun. That little bit of energy from each one, because if you add up these four protons, one, two, three, four, and you add up their mass, and you add up the mass of what comes out, this helium atom, the helium atom has a little bit less mass. Einstein said E equals mc squared. We lost a little bit of mass, we gained a lot of energy. So. That little tiny bit of mass, and it's, it's very small, but when you do that billions of times every second, you actually create a lot of energy. So that little tiny bit of mass difference between what you put in, four protons, and what came out, one helium nucleus, is what counts for all the energy production in the sun. Now if it just happened once, that wouldn't do very much. But when you're doing this, again, billions and billions of times every second, that adds up to a lot of energy and is enough energy to keep the sun stable. And it's got enough of this hydrogen and helium to do this process for about 10 billion years. So let me see what's... Ah, we'll stop. That's neutrinos. That's basically, that's basically where I want to... We can talk about neutrinos next time. I won't... What that means is that neutrinos will not be on your exam. I'll only go up through the process of the proton-proton chain. So if you need a copy of the homework, I do have that. Otherwise, have a good afternoon and good weekend, and I'll see you next week.